Blog Talk Radio. Star engine you just heard, and basically it's uh, telling you that our stories range from the mail wing days to the huge Lockheed L-1011. As with all our broadcasts, here is an Eastern commercial to start our show. The airline that doesn't plan for the future may not have one. 
Five years ago, Eastern saw the future in a remarkable aircraft. Now it's here. The new Boeing 757, the most advanced, most fuel-efficient commercial jet ever built. It's going to help Eastern hold down the cost of flying for years to come. We earn our wings for As we like to tell our first-time listeners, you can listen in with your smartphone or go to our radio show provider at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Captain Eddie, and that's C-A-P-T-E-D-D-I-E, Captain Eddie, at 3 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Just click the start arrow. Remember, it must be at 3 p.m. or you'll be given the message that the show has not yet begun. Many just call in to the show on their cell phones, 213-816-1611. This will put you on the producer's board, and all you have to do to share your comments or join our discussion is to touch the number one on your smartphone's keyboard. That will uh, tell the producer to unmute your phone's microphone, then join the fun. Now you can choose to listen or talk with the host. Last week in episode six, we shared repartee stories titled Blind Landings, or How It Was Done by the Old Timers. Captain Jim Holder's story, Gooseneck Oiler, is always a fun story to tell, and Senior Vice President of Flight Operations, Captain John Halliburton's talent as a poet was revealed in the poem, Co-Pilot Daniel O'Toole. Remember, you can listen to any of the broadcasts of the Reaper Radio Hour by going to the EAL Radio Show's website's archive. That's EALRadioShow.com, and then look for the archive. Each one of the shows is defined as to the content, and select the topic, uh, the date that you want to hear in case you miss a show. Now, let's listen to... Uh, a record that you probably haven't heard in a long, long time. Let's see if you guys can identify the singer of this song. I got steam heat, I got steam heat, I got steam heat, but I need your love. To keep away the cold, I got steam heat, I got steam heat, I got steam heat, but I can't get warm without your hand to hold. The radiator's hissing, still I need your kissing to keep me from freezing each night. I got a hot water bottle, but nothing I got'll take the place of you. Holding me tight, I got. Steam heat, I got Steam heat, I got Steam heat, but I need your love To keep away the cold Well, not exactly a song that would go with our first story Written by Captain Bill Malone But the title seemed appropriate and Everybody our age enjoyed the songs of. I'm going to give the singer's name away, but I'll hold you to the date this record came out. The song was by Doris Day. Now, 
here's Bill Malone's story about steam heat. Oh, how different it is today's in today's modern aircraft than it was back in the day. Steam heat of a different kind, as told by Captain Bill Malone in the 1985 issue of Repartee. One would have to brush away the cobwebs of his mind to recall that period in the 1940s when our DC-3's interiors were heated with steam. Joe Vance, who was well known along the Atlanta-Chicago route, recalls vividly the involved operation of providing heat in these early planes. Anytime an airplane landed in cold weather, the boiler located in the exhaust stack of the right engine had to be drained to prevent freezing. There was a water tank and a pressure tank between the cabin and the cockpit door on the right side of the baggage compartment between the two compartments. A spare gallon can of water was strapped to the floor below the reservoir. The water was not dropped to the boiler until the uh, the airplane became airborne because the water line to the boiler was most susceptible to freezing. There was a knob at the bottom of the co-pilot's instrument panel which controlled the nose valve, providing the air source for ventilation. This was screwed closed until a full head of steam pressure appeared on the boiler gauge after water was dropped. Then one had to be very careful to crack the nose valve so too much cold air would not cause steam pressure to be lost. The co-pilot would open the nose valve one turn while the captain watched the pressure gauge. If the pressure dropped, the nose valve had to be closed again. Once heat was established, the nose valve was opened fully and heated air went into the cabin. Fish Simpson remembers just before you cranked up and the ground people would pour hot water in the boiler through a funnel and valve in the nacelle. Once for about two weeks, every flight between Louisville and Chicago had frozen boilers. Once it was so cold on Paul Charles's, uh, Charles's flight from Louisville to Atlanta that water, which had spilled, filling the spare can, seeped down through the floor and froze the control cables. Paul had to fly the plane with the trim taps, but they worked in reverse. After much shaking of the controls, they finally broke free. Bish later fixed a bleeder valve, or orifice, which would allow the initial steam pressure to thaw the pipe to the boiler. Joe Vance remembers how he had to use this steam heat on the bitter cold morning of January 15, 1948. As he walked out the front door of the Stevens Hotel in Chicago, he felt the knife edge of the wind blowing down Michigan Avenue. While riding to Midway Airport in the Cadillac limousine, he could feel the cold creeping up through the floor and into his legs. Midway resembled the steeps of Siberia in midwinter. Airplanes were holding both northwest and southeast of the field. Up in the control tower, the operator was saying, 
Eastern be ready to leave the Thornton intersection in five minutes. The snow plows are northwestbound. It had been snowing all night, and the six plows had been moving abreast, up and down the runway the entire time. Each time they neared the opposite end of the runway, a plane was cleared to land. During the night, pilots had been using the Cicero Avenue approach, one of their many innovations. At this time, both high-intensity runway lights were a thing of the future. The runway lights at Midway Airport were flush with the runway and actually dimmer than the lights of cars driving down Cicero Avenue. So after letting down to minimum altitude, the pilot would look for the Blue Island tank, then the Cicero Avenue lights, follow them to the edge of the field, and line up with the dimmer runaway lights. Before taking off from Midway on that bitter cold morning, Joe Vance and his co-pilot, Dan Trask, carefully went over the procedures for providing heat. It was so cold the engine oil had been diluted with gasoline. It was necessary to pour a cup full of gas down the air intake to the carburetor to start the engines. But in spite of all their precautions, after takeoff, the pressure dropped the boiler froze and burst. All the ship's blankets were pressed into use. On the approach at Indianapolis, ice had formed in the inside of the cockpit windshield and had to be removed with emergency glycerin. A routine landing was made, but the trip was canceled because the left engine would not start. Later, Eastern installed the gasoline-operated janitrol heaters, but they were not without their problems because sometimes discarded flight papers accidentally blew out of the windows and stopped up the heater air intake, causing the batteries or the heaters not to operate. did you spend watching the hilarious episodes every week of the I Love Lucy show? Lucille Ball was truly a lady who was funny with her slapstick antics back in the 50s. And Repartee had an article, again written by Captain Bill Malone, titled Ladies Can Be Funny. So let's listen to this story, Ladies Can Be Funny. 
Ladies Can Be Funny by Hank Foley in the 1998 issue of Repartee. It occurred to me recently that the stories we tell of our years with Eastern are always about men. In the early days, of course, the company was made up of men. Some of our younger pilots may not uh, have even heard that before World War II, we had male pursers only and no stewardesses. As the years progressed, there were more and more women working with us until by the time we old Pelican pilots were starting to retire, all airlines were hiring young ladies as pilots. There are surely many good stories involving our stewardesses, crew schedulers, ground radio operators, and office personnel. I recall some that involved me personally and many that I heard secondhand. I frequently flew the trip from Miami to St. Thomas Virgin Islands. The en route scenery was very impressive, and we usually made a cabin announcement as we passed San Salvador, where Columbus made his historic landfall. On one trip, Nancy Gibbony was working in the cabin. Nancy was always good-natured and possessed a good sense of humor, and after the San Salvador announcement, she came up to the cockpit and remarked how passengers are always interested in Columbus's island. Our first officer was John Cobb, and he told how the famous landfall was made at night with lights being sighted on shore. The second officer, young Tim Ely's Jr., added the information that the ships had to drift all through the long, dark night before approaching the unknown shore in daylight. In fact, all historians agree that Columbus first discovered the New World at night. Nancy put on a very serious expression and without cracking a smile said, I guess that's why we hear so often about the Knights of Columbus. Many old pilots will remember a stewardess named Paula Reed, extremely intelligent, charming personality. She had that quality that we often refer to as class. The company recognized this and often called her for VIP flights that might require delicate handling. In fact, at one time, it was a foregone conclusion that on any flight involving very important people, the crew would include Dick Merrill up front and Paula in the back. I'm told that a well-known story that, calcul that, calcul that circulated among the airlines and on to news columns and magazines involving the heavyweight champ Muhammad Ali actually occurred on one of Paula's flights. It seems that the fighter didn't fasten his seatbelt. When Paula came past checking, she asked him to buckle up. He answered, Superman don't need no safety belt, to which Paula replied, The real Superman don't need no airplane. Paula was the soul of tact, patience, and understanding, but she wished to be treated with respect. I'm sure it's no secret that some of our pilots were, to put it mildly, grouchy. To put it truthfully, some were impolite, even downright nasty and unsociable. 
We all remember trips when the meal service was almost physically impossible because of shortness of time, rough air, and or a, a lot of babies on board needing attention. Clever, hard-working flight attendants could make a go of it by using some tricks. On one such flight, Paula went up to the flight deck before takeoff and explained the difficulties and suggested that if she could bring the crew meals up during the climb, they could commence serving passengers as soon as they, they, the, the seatbelt sign went off. Most crews were glad to incorporate. Some even reduced speed a little when possible. However, on this flight, the captain was evidently having a bad day and growled that he'd take his coffee when the seatbelt sign went off and then directly have his meal brought up and added, I don't see why I should change my eating habits just to suit your meal service. Paula's response was, I don't know anything about your habits. I hope they're better than your manners. Flying out of Miami to our northern cities during the winter was an adventure, even to seasoned travelers. On one such trip, there was a new flight attendant just out of school. En route, she came up to the flight deck, obviously thrilled and excited about her new career. After being impressed by all the fancy dials and gadgets, she asked the second officer what the temperature was in Boston. He told it was 17, he told her it was 17 degrees. She paused and then asked, "Is that freezing?" That jolted the second officer a little and probably without in, intending to be um, looked at, a bit shocked and answered, "Of course, anything below 32 degrees is freezing." She realized she must have said something wrong and explained, "Well, I didn't know. I'm new at this job. Now that both airlines are that both airlines are nothing but memories, we may find ourselves looking back on national airlines with almost fondness. But many years ago when we were in cutthroat competition with them on the New York Miami route, the feelings were often quite hostile. On a layover on eastern an eastern crew in street clothes were having a meal together when the flight attendant noticed a girlfriend entering the restaurant with two men. The eastern girl realized that it was a national crew, also in street clothes. The other girl approached the table with her crew, and it became obvious that introductions would be in order. The eastern stewardess said in a low voice to her crew, Don't bother to get up. They're only national. At the Miami base, we were quite proud of our chief pilot's office. I must qualify that statement quickly, since it was not unusual to have friction between the office and the line pilots. The pride I'm referring to was directed toward the female contingent. Chief pilots might come and go, but deep in the inner office, Betty reigned supreme. Completely unflappable, she handled all problems smoothly and efficiently. In fact, the word got around that if you wanted to get something done, talk to Betty directly, and if it was possible and reasonable, it would get done. Then at the other end of the office, shielding it 
from the rude world was Dottie's desk. She helped with all the 101 details of pilots' lives, passes to and from other bases and ground schools, time off for medical reasons, insurance problems, physical exams, and such things. At one time, I worked in the training department, and we had a little meeting room for orals and paperwork. Right adjoining Dottie's office, uh, over and over, I'd be in the room when a crew from another base arrived, and they had to walk past Dottie's desk to come into the training room. Then I heard, hear the comments like, hey, wow. How come we don't have something like that at our base? I still recall one exchange, first pilot. Boy, she's pretty as a picture. Second pilot. Yeah, nice frame, too. Or this interesting comment. Golly, a girl like that could ruin a man if he was lucky. I guess most of us have encountered people who move to a different place and either consciously or unconsciously adopt the accents and voice mannerisms of the new location. The most extreme case I've experienced was a boy in my hometown that I grew up with. He spent less than a year in England during the war and came home with a strong British accent. On Eastern, we sometimes saw a Brooklyn boy moved to the Atlanta base, and before you knew it, he was saying, you all, and show enough. One time, we were sitting in the crew room at the Boston base, and a girl working in crew skids sat and chatted with us. She mentioned something about her car, but she pronounced it in that strange Boston manner. Ka, with the A pronounced like the A in a cat. One of our crew remarked that she must be solid gold Bostonian, judging by her accent. She blushed a little and admitted she had only been there a few months. I'm not really solid gold Bostonian. I'm just gold-plated. Here's a story that former electric crews can understand. We remember how temperamental that aircraft was about maintenance. There was a saying that every trip started with the crew chief with the logbook and its long string of write-ups waiting for the captain and asking the captain if he would take the trip or make repairs. One of the critical gauges was the turbine inlet, inlet temperature, or TIT, usually a no, no-go item. On a trip approaching Washington, the pilot tried to radio in that the number one TIT was not working, but the girl radio operator would not repeat the message back. The crew had to wait until they were at the gate to advise maintenance. They found out later that the radio operator was a brought-up young lady who would not let any fresh pilot force her into an indelicate, sexy talk over the radio. Recalling and repeating these little stories is a bittersweet experience. I chuckle at the sayings and the reactions of our old associates. And then a blue mood mood sneaks in when I realize that those days and many of the people are gone forever. Melancholy poets have described such feelings. I have had crewmates. I have had companions. 
in my young days, those long-gone work days. All are, go- are, are all gone, the old familiar faces. But then I realized that such feelings are unmanly and unbecoming a former captain, and I recall another poet. How dull it is to pause and make the end an end, to rust unblemished and not shine in use. Age has yet its honor and its toil. Some work of noble nature may yet be done. Not unbecoming men who strove with gods, we have not now the strength of former days that moved earth and heaven, but what we are, we are. Strong in will to strive and seek and not to yield. And then maybe my phone will ring and I'll hear the cheery voice of Oral Bivens asking, Is this the real Red Baron of the Redlands? I'm coming down to take you to lunch, he would say. The Red Baron business refers to the to the bright red pits S2B and the area that I live in, known as the Redlands. And then I'm all cheered up again. Adding to Hank Foley's amusing remembrances, your editor recalls a funny experience involving Captain Mark Britt, who was so popular among the co-pilots that he always had a senior experienced crew to fly with. It was just a privilege for them to do Everything to make Mark's trip easy and enjoyable. They would tune in the radio frequency, set the course indicator, and provide maps and charts. Mark never had occasion to even open his briefcase. Someone thought it would be clever to put a brick in his flight bag. Everyone snickered as Mark carried his bag with the brick inside. Pleased with the joke... They thought it would be twice as funny to put a second brick in poor Mark's bag, although he had arthritis carrying such a heavy bag. But then one day he happened to open it and discover the bricks inside. Somehow he found out who did it. So he went to the storage room where the flight bags were kept, located the culprit's bag, emptied it, nailed it to the floor with large beaded nails, then returned the contents. The unsuspecting co-pilot tore the handle off trying to pick up his bag. So it was Mark Britt, after all, who was the most clever and who had the last laugh. And indeed, they were funny. And believe it or not, the best off-color jokes that I heard were told by stewardesses or flight attendants later. Why, I remember this one that had me in stitches, and it went something like, no, nah, better not, not this time or the show. So this is the time in our broadcast to share a poem written by Eastern pilots and some anonymous poets the editors included about our profession. This is one such poem titled Empty Tanks. Let's listen to a few lines in this song, and you'll know what the poem is all about. You're happily retired now, hooray for you, happily retired now, what you gonna do, 
There's books to read and golf to play, naps to take, have fun all day. You're happily retired today, hooray. Oh yes, you're happily retired now, hooray for you. Happily retired now, what you're gonna do? All the kids must move away, there's nothing really left to say. You're happily retired today, hooray. Many of the repartee magazines contained poems written by anonymous poets and some that were signed. The title of this poem is Empty Tanks, appearing in the 1980 issue of repartee. The fog of old ships has enveloped his name. The clear ice of time dull the lift of the game. The breaking of trail in his 10,000 hours has emptied the tank of his youth and his powers. And so he is through, and his license is gone, the shadows of night for the theme of his dawn. He closes his log, takes the wings from his coat, with smoke in his eyes and a lump in his throat. But would he have quit had he foreseen the end? are known from the first, he'd be whipped by the trend. No, not he, no, not he. May his breed never die. His license may lapse, but his heart will still fly. Well, that's our readings from the Best of Repartee, a history of recorded as recorded by its pilots. The Retired Eastern Pilots Association's official magazine. I hope you will stick around for some REPA chat. And I see we have a few people on our producers board here. And so I'm going to open up their microphones and see what's going on out there in uh, Corona. I was going to say Corona land. But, uh, <laughs> so you'd be right. <laughs> but I would be right. Well, that's Mike. Mike, since you chimed in first how are you oh we're doing good i enjoyed all of that stuff i had to thumb through the book to find out which page numbers there were so we could follow <laughs> you along well did you know what and year doris day sang that song anyone 1954 1954 year i graduated mm -hmm. from high wow. school <laughs> <laughs> uh okay uh and, i cheated uh, also, i looked it up oh yeah yeah, I have I have a question for you guys. Go, Don G Gagnon. Go ahead. Yes, yes. Uh, for you pilots, uh, the first say one or two weeks after you retired, what were your feelings? What did you feel? In other words, uh, divorce. Your, huh? I, I I was uh, looking up in the yellow pages the divorce attorney. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I was. I guess that's what I was getting at. <laughs> You're talking about the COVID-19. I tell you, I was climbing the walls. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, that was my question. Yeah, okay, very good. I hope that was a good answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sounded good to me. <laughs> And by the way, uh, that was not Captain Bill Malone's story about uh, ladies can be funny. That was, as you heard, Hank Foley, one of my screw-ups there. 
And uh, Hank Foley was a captain and also uh, the editor of uh, Repartee for a while, short period of time, yep. I think. Well, but, that um, you'd have to rely on whoever would be free enough to give someone the time to do it. Yeah, yeah. Um, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, well, uh, what happened, you know, after I retired, uh, the very next, well, that night we had a, a, a party at the uh, Chicago Midway uh, for my retirement when I came in, and my son Michael was there, and Carrie flew up on my last trip. Well, she flew down, too, to Fort Lauderdale, in fact. I put her on a jump seat coming back, the old saying, what are you going to do? Are they going to fire you, you know? <laughs> yeah. But anyhow, uh, we had a, a nice party at the crash pad and had about 40, 50 people came through, and I just was a great time. And the next morning, uh, Louis Brizard wrote many times famously how he hated Chicago. He lived up there a couple <laughs> of times. But, you know, happiness is Chicago in your rearview mirror, he wrote in the, in the Atlanta paper. <laughs> So Michael and I and Carrie and Michael's up front in my little SUV and Carrie was in the back and the rear end of it was packed with all our suitcases and everything. And I wanted to see Chicago in my rear view mirror. It was a beautiful, clear, <laughs> winter morning. And we went about 30 miles south and I looked and all I could see was suitcases. So I pulled off <laughs> on the side of the road <laughs> and got out and looked at Chicago and the I didn't have to do the rear view mirror. I looked at it straight on, and boy, was I happy. I was so glad to get out of Chicago. Oh, man, I had 10 winters up there. You didn't say how many years you had. You said how many winters you had. And ATA, I had 10 of them. A boy from Mississippi, that was cruel, cruel. You know, uh, speaking of that uh, steam heat, uh, I had a flight one time, and this uh, engineer came up to me and asked me if it was okay for me to, or for him to put a a little dial back there in the galley uh, for the flight attendants. And uh, I asked him what 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 it was, and and he showed me, and it was the face of a little dial that uh, ranged basically from left to right, uh, and a needle pointing left to right, and the color. Uh, in the in the uh, range, and I said, "Well, what's this all about?" He said, "Well, he said, I'm going to tell the flight attendants." And it had a rubber cup on the back of it, by the way. Uh, Jim, you may have flown with this guy, but he he uh, he, he got so tired of uh, adjusting the temperature for the flight mm-hmm. attendants when they had mm-hmm. meal service, so he arranged to make this little dial to stick it up in the in the in the galley. And mm-hmm. tell them, the flight attendants, the senior, that the maintenance had installed this new little gauge for them to control their own temperature. And uh, after doing that, uh, he stuck it at a place where uh, some other gadgets were. And sure enough, it worked every time because they never called him about adjusting mm-hmm. the temperature. <laughs> <laughs> I may be wrong. I may be wrong, but I think on the DC-7 they did have a temperature control toward the rear of the airplane on the wall. Oh, they did? Okay. Yeah, they did, and my memory, and my memory is notoriously poor, but I remember that uh, the captain used to tell me that they flight attendants 
you know, they they, they never call on the DC seven because it wasn't working. They disconnected. It was still up there, and they were back there just turning the knob back and forth all over the place. <laughs> yeah. And it actually was officially part of the airplane. It just wasn't connected anymore. And I don't know. That, <laughs> that may have been where he got the idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. I never realized well. that they steam aboard the airplane. That was really new to me. Can, can, can you imagine? I don't know whether you could follow the uh, ritual of getting uh, heat into the uh, airplane, but wow, what a challenge that must have been back in those days. Jerry Frost would know. I think Jerry has some time in the DC-3, doesn't he, Jim? Uh, not at Eastern. He may have earlier. I know Don Teal yeah. did. Okay. Uh, I can't well, you talk about well, you heating, know. An air, heating an air-conditioned airplane, you know, when you went to the Electra, our flight oh, engineer, yeah. second officer, flight you know, whatever they call us. And uh, you could get on that airplane in the dead of winter. And five minutes after you got on it, it was warm as toast in there. And the same thing with air conditioning, a hot day summer. Yeah. You know, yeah. that airplane was a wonderful airplane in many respects. And temperature control for the crew and the passengers was just excellent, excellent. And, and Jim, you could make it snow. And you could say, how many inches do you yep. want? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, I tell you how I don't know. Thinking about the Electra, I don't know if I've told this story before, but you could get bored being a, a TFE or pilot flight engineer. You wanted to be a pilot flight engineer. The FAA came up with that title just for the Electra during all that stuff with the flight engineer strike and all that kind of stuff. But anyhow, it had 10 million little itty bitty light bulbs all over at the cockpit. It just everywhere. And every time <laughs> I left on the trip, I'd go by maintenance and get a box of those little bitty bulbs. And I'll tell you, on a long three hour trip, I could replace 90% of the lights because they had burned out. And you never yeah. knew it. You had so many of them. Did you fly engineer on the electric deal? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, I sure did. Did you You're do right. the light bulb thing? <laughs> oh, I, yeah. That's nothing else to do, you know. I'm just taking these little light bulbs <laughs> yeah. out there and putting your little break, light bulbs. Break, break a lot of fingernails. <laughs> yes, that's <laughs> yeah. right. Uh, well, you know, it's it uh, other than that. Yeah. Us, us 727 drivers, uh, Jim and, and Neil both, uh, we all know the – what a, what a problem it was to try to regulate the uh, the heat in the 100 and the 200 mm-hmm. uh, because they uh, yeah. when when you know R7 the one I flew had it was a long range it was never designed to be a long range airplane but we had 2830 mm-hmm. gallons of fuel down in the belly mm-hmm. so on long trips when the cockpit was just and nice and toasty guess who would come to the cockpit and say it's too hot in the back. Yeah. <laughs> flight attendant yeah. would come up so now you got to start running the temperature getting it cooler back there for them and that, what does that happen to us now all of a sudden <laughs> we got to get the sweaters and the jackets out the only yeah. time we got a uh, the uh, the temperature regulated is if they had enough to drink and whatnot if it was nighttime they would they would all go to sleep and this way here we could open the cockpit door and let some of that heat from the back come up <laughs> Come up yeah. into the cockpit. <laughs> yeah. And on a 200, you know, that, that crazy uh, aft uh, valve that they had in, in the back there, that, that seemed to work backwards. <laughs> you could never <laughs> regulate the temperature correctly on that thing. Yeah. But, yeah, we all remember those. Well, 
two people you know, that of, uh, go ahead. Speaking Don. of uh, cockpits and instruments, well, one of the funniest things or the, or the neatest looking things uh, when we're boarding out at the gates, um, you know, you get unaccompanied kids would come up with their parents, and the, the nice thing was. You put the kids on with maybe one adult first, walk them down the jetway, knock on the cockpit door, and the guys open the door, and these little kids' eyes would just light up to see Mm -hmm. all this stuff going on up there. And Mm -hmm. I had never seen a time when the crews weren't receptive. They just, come on up here and look around, and uh, what's this for, and what's that for? Especially if they're between, like, uh, 8 and 12. Uh, they really get, you know, uh, yeah. inquisitive about it. But uh, yeah. everybody everybody was so nice uh, in the cockpit. And, of course, the flight attendants had those little wings that they would pin on them, you know. Yeah. So uh, just something I happen to think about. Go ahead. <laughs> I got a pair of Go ahead, uh, Mike. We used to have, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of different passengers on board all the time, and of course they'd they'd always want to come up to the cockpit either when they're not usually when they were boarding after after because we used to keep the cockpit door open most of the time, and uh, even after the regulation, but they 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 would wander up to the cockpit and they uh, they used to say, boy, they were very impressed. It says they've never been. Never been in the cockpit before, and, and our favorite comeback was this. It's our first time, too. It has been many a kid came up to the cockpit and had his picture taken with the captain's hat on. Yeah, uh, that reminds me. They had all oh, yeah, that, the guys yeah. used to do all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, yeah. that's just the way it was. Uh uh, you know, and the little kids come up there, and and they're still, you know they they're a little scared maybe, but uh, they look in the door and they get all enthused about what's going on up there. Yeah. Some and then some too. <laughs> some beautiful young girl would come on board, and uh, <laughs> you would hope that they would act like a kid and want to come up to the cockpit. <laughs> no such luck. <laughs> yep. But uh, uh, I don't know. One day I'll read my story that I have in the wings of many about uh, Boom Boom. And uh, that's the story of Boom Boom out in Los Angeles. And uh, you have to get the book, buy the book before you can read the story. Or either I might break down one day and read and, and tell that story. Oh, somebody's got some music going. Yeah, very good. (laughs) <laughs> Very good. <laughs> you know, there were two people that we mentioned uh, in that story about uh, uh, the um, steam heat. Was it steam heat? No, ladies can be funny, I guess it was. Joe Vance and Dan Trask. And no, that was steam heat. Joe Vance was, uh, you flew with him, didn't you, Jim? Oh, yes. I didn't fly with the other guy, though. And then Dan Trask is the one that checked me out in the Convair when I first came to Eastern Airlines. We had our flight training down in New Orleans, and Andy Smith and I were partnered together. He was uh, the junior guy in our class. And we went through flight training with uh, Justin Greiner, 
as our instructor in New Orleans, and everybody knows Justin Griner from Eastern Airlines. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think people out in out in the reservation center had heard of his name, but um, at any rate, uh, Dan gave the check ride, and Justin, of course, was our instructor. But Joe Vance, what a what a great guy to fly with, and um, even though you knew that. If you got the leg between Omaha and Seattle in the 727, you were going to fly the airplane without the autopilot. He just did not like for you to use the autopilot. And the way I found out about that is I was coupling the autopilot when I got to cruise altitude, and he'd turn around and say, Neil, don't you like to fly? <laughs> and... and I had a question mark on my face, and he said, uh, why do you want to use the autopilot? You want to fly the airplane out there. So at any rate, for the whole month, you would be flying without the auto autopilot. And I had the pleasure of paying him back. I think I've told this about two or three times on the radio show. So don't mind this, Jim Holder, if you tell a story or two <laughs> or three, uh, the same one. This uh, happened that I had Joe and his wife on the flight from Atlanta to San Antonio. And it was nonstop flight. And uh, I saw them out in the waiting area to board the airplane. And of course, he'd been retired for about seven years at this point. And when he came on board the airplane, I told the flight, the flight attendant uh, after we got all the passengers and closed the door, I said, go back and ask for Joe, uh, seated and so and so he's a retired captain to come up to the cockpit and uh he did if <clears throat> he she asked him the captain like to see if he wanted to fly in the cockpit yeah to make a long story short when he got up uh, we took off uh, out of atlanta we started our climb just out of the approach uh, departure control and turned over to center and i uh, said okay joe let's swap seats and he hmm. looked at me Seven twenty-seven. I was flying captain on seven twenty-seven, so I said, "Let's swap mm -hmm. seats." So he said, "Great, <laughs> yeah, you gonna let me fly?" I said, "Yep, all the way to San Antonio, but you're not <laughs> going to use the damn autopilot." <laughs> he said, "Well, Neil, you know I never use the autopilot anyhow." And you know, after seven years of not flying that airplane, we got up to cruise altitude. That guy didn't vary his altitude by more than 10 feet almost, you know, up and down. Mm -hmm. uh, a remarkable pilot. Yeah, great pilot, Joe Vance. Yeah. He had a great wife, too. Yeah, she was. I can't think of her name right now. I want to say Evelyn. Ann Vance. Ann Vance. A couple right. of years ago, yeah. She was yeah. a sweetheart. Yeah. But then the, the, the end of the story, the rest of the story is when we got back a few days later, I was taking the same trip out. And Joe had just come back to Atlanta on another flight, and I was getting ready for my departure on my new sequence. And there was Joe talking to Paul Kelly in the corridor about me letting him fly the airplane to San Antonio. <laughs> chief pilot. Telling the chief pilot. I, oh, God. Chief pilot. Yes, that's the chief pilot. Well, Paul probably thought it was funny. Yeah. Well, no, no autopilot will definitely hone your skills. Uh, we took off out of uh, out of Newark, heading for Tel Aviv with a London stop, and autopilot wouldn't engage. So we ended up having to fly the airplane 
uh, all the way to London, and oh, then gee. all the way to Tel Aviv with no autopilot. Oh, and then boy. we had a we had a uh, TWA seven forty seven flight. I forgot which one it was. It was bringing an autopilot unit in for us to change, and it got delayed. And then we were getting ready to leave. And when we departed out of Tel Aviv, heading back towards uh, uh, actually we were heading to uh, to Keflavik because of the winds for that day. But uh, we uh, as we were climbing out of Tel Aviv, we could we saw the this, the TWA seven forty seven coming coming in and we know our autopilot unit was in that airplane <laughs> so we had to fly it all the way over and all the way back with no autopilot that'll hone your skills for a while yes it will yeah <laughs> Well, I hear breaking news, breaking news. What in the world's going on? I don't know whether, Mike, you sent this to me or George Jen. I think George Jen George, sent this George to me. George, George sent that, yeah. April 30th, 1961 was the launch day. That's today, 1961, 59 years ago, launch date for Eastern Airlines Shuttle among Boston, New York, Newark, and Washington. Just $12 one way from New York to Boston. $14 New York to Washington, one of America's oldest and biggest airlines, Eastern, promised travelers hourly departures and no reservations required. The shuttle was a huge success, a storied part of the golden age of air travel. Celebrated in countless television commercials, anytime there's a choice, I always say Eastern, tickets, baggage, they do it all for you. You just sit back and enjoy it. George, thanks for sending this in. And George adds a comment. He said, but for only so long, Lorenzo sold the shuttle to Trump in 1989. This was the event that cost us our airline. Lorenzo had obtained needed cash to beat the strike, then in turn to U.S. Airways, and then again to American following their 2015 merger. So that's the breaking news. Today, 59, I think that's 59. Anybody want to do the math? Yeah. Hey, you mentioned George Jen, Joe. Uh, can, I, can I comment about something about sure. George Jen? Did you yep. guys get an email from George Jen that the title is the worst, W-O-R-S-T? He sent it to uh, undisclosed people, you know, but it sent it to me. And I got it this morning, and I opened it, and it's got some pictures in there. And one of the pictures... And is a picture of the ten eleven seats that I got it I got on a uh blind auction for that uh commercial convention was gonna uh it didn't make it in Atlanta, but I got those ten eleven seats and built a frame for them, and they were in my hangar, and they're just sitting there, and there's a picture of them in this email from George Jen, and it's just like. Where in the world did he get a picture of seats in my airplane? <laughs> put all it in my hangar, I mean. And I just yeah. sold them here about three or four months ago. And I don't <laughs> have them anymore. But I had them 10 years, and they were wonderful 10, 11 bird flight seats. People always wanted to sit in them when they came to see me in my hangar. And there yeah. it is in this email from George Jen. And and I, I, I'm going to call him up on the phone and ask him, where in the world did he get the picture of the seats in my hangar? Yeah, it's I just being like Colombo. Oh, yeah. The, yeah. the, the, the text, it came this morning and it says the worst. 
That's the name of the email. The worst. The worst. All right, I'll look for it. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Dorothy, I cut you off with the breaking news. What were you about to say? No, I had asked you if uh, the chief pilot ever said anything to you when you got in trouble. No. Uh, fortunately, uh, the chief pilot and I got along pretty well. And uh, the story about Boom Boom uh, uh, proved that to be true uh, because uh, I was 30 minutes late for a trip because of following this uh, this Boom Boom around the Los Angeles terminal. And it cost me 30 minutes. I didn't even know I, the flight was supposed to depart. So I was casually walking around following her. And uh, <laughs> notice I said following. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> but, at any, but at any rate, uh, uh, he, he wanted me to check in with him in the office when I got back to Atlanta. That was one of the messages that came through before we landed uh, in Atlanta. And uh, I walked in, and now I had it covered, pretty well covered, because uh, the flight attendant uh, told me, uh, I, I told her about the gal that was sitting in row so-and-so, seat so-and-so, because she was on our airplane coming back to Atlanta. And um, and I uh, told her that uh, I was the cause for the 30-minute late departure of the airplane. And I knew I was going to be fired when I got back, but uh, she wrote me a nice little message on one of those little dollies on the doilies, I guess they're called, on the food trays, and then put a a kiss with her lipstick on it and said, "Uh, Captain, I'm sorry I kept you out so late, and it was a make-up story, made-up story, and gave it to me. And, of course, when I walked into Paul's office, uh, he was about to ask me about why I was 30 minutes late for a trip. And I said, well, this pretty much explains it. And I gave him that doily that she had written and kissed. <laughs> and he said, well, get the, the hell out of here. He said, get the hell a, out of here, Neil. <laughs> I guess she had you try to wiggle your way out of that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I kept that little message from her for a long, long time. She was on Johnny Carson's show, uh, Boom Boom. And uh, mm. he had he, he it, it had her and... The, there's, they were a volleyball team in Los Angeles. They, they played volleyball down by the Santa Monica Pier. And she had her shorts on. I mean, uh, it would be overdressed at Hooters, uh, her her little pants that she was wearing. <laughs> I mean, uh, the Hooters girls would be overdressed compared to what she was wearing. And uh, she had boom boom across her T-shirt. So it was Obviously, she was one of the Boom Boom girls. But uh, Paul found that message, that little note to me, interesting. But uh, And the rest of the story is even funnier. But I told the whole story. Peggy hasn't read that story yet in the book. So <laughs> I better not let well, her get a hold of this the, book. Keep the 10-inch skillet hidden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay, guys, it's really great uh, that uh, I, I enjoy these chat sessions. We ought to just do away with the reading of the stories, but it's great oh, having you guys here. Yeah, yeah, you do a great job at it. Yeah, no, I really enjoy the readings. You know, those yeah. are the stories that you've never heard before, so you kind of like to hear them. I mean, you folks may have, but not a lot of people have. 
Yeah. Well, Dorothy, what's coming up Monday night? Okay, Monday night we have uh, your music, uh, EAL Music and History of uh, World War II and Oscar Brand. And then we follow, of course, that next Thursday is another Reaper show. It will be Episode 8. And then after that is going to be the evolution of the airplane seat. So we'll look forward to hearing uh, or seeing about the airplane seat that you're talking about today. Yeah, okay, very good. We're going to land the airplane. Here we go. Okay. Well, our sign-off music is playing in the background, so we'll see you again next week, same time when we continue our trip through the pages of Repartee, the magazine of the Retired Eastern Pilots Association. Remember the EAL radio show Monday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time when we bring you the best aviation stories. Well, we did that a while back on the 20th. But uh, as Dorothy said, uh, we'll be doing uh, Oscar Brand's songs, World War II. So long, Eastern, and so long to our Eastern family. It's been great being with you today, and we love you, Eastern. Boom Boom is on page 12, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'm I'm going to hang up. All right, we'll see you guys. Thanks so much. Enjoy it. Left me standing here behind Silver wings Shining in the sunlight Roaring engines Headed somewhere in flight They're taking you away Leaving Silver wings Slowly fading out of